0: We are thrilled to welcome Dr. Guru Paran, who will give a talk on invoking transitional justice without a transition, reflections on Sri Lanka's transitional justice program, 2015, 2019. Before we start, just a couple of words on our group. Oxford Transitional Justice Research is an interdisciplinary network of academics and students who work on issues of transition societies recovering from conflict or repressive rule. We were founded in 2007. We've been going strong since then. We're now a large and diverse academic community conducting research in the field. And we focus on transitional justice defined in a broad way. So we look at it from a variety of perspectives, including law, criminology, development, political theory, socio-legal studies, history, and area studies, among others. If you are interested in our work, please let us know, and we can tell you more about our activities and our developing research portfolio. Today, as I said, we are excited to have Dr. Guru Paran with us, just to give a brief introduction of our speaker. He served as an academic attached to the Department of Law, University of Jaffna, Sri Lanka between 2010 and 2020. He's also a practicing attorney and has appeared as lead counsel in a number of cases relating to post-war human rights issues in Northern Sri Lanka, including in cases relating to the right to memory, the rights of families of the disappeared and post-war land issues. He's a co-founder of the Tamil Civil Society Forum and founder chair of the Alam Center for Policy Research based in Jaffna, Sri Lanka. He holds an LLB from the University of Colombo, Sri Lanka and the BCL from Balliol College, University of Oxford and a PhD from University College London in Public International Law and Comparative Constitutional Law. Dr. Gurparan was also at the Bonavera Institute of Human Rights. So he was with us very recently. He was a researcher who visited between October 2020 and January 2021. A couple of housekeeping rules. Um, You are muted upon entry and please remain muted throughout the talk. During the Q and A, please um, type your question in the chat. This is one option and we can read it out for you. If on the other hand, you would like to pose your question yourself, you can either raise your hand or just type question and the moderator is going to give you the floor. Thank you, Dr. Gurupran for being with us today. look forward to your talk and the floor is now yours.
1: Thank you very much, Uh, let me share my screen. Okay, Um, uh, thank you uh, very much uh, for this invitation to present the Oxford Transitional Justice uh, group, uh, a group that I first became uh, familiar with when I I was doing my BCL in 2010 at Bay College, Um, so it's great to be I used to attend uh, most, if not all the seminars uh, throughout my BCATS. so it's great to be back uh, with the OTAJR group this time presenting. Um, it's an honor um, uh, for, for, for having been invited. So thank you very much for this invitation. Now, um, uh, the subject matter that I've taken is a question of uh, um, uh, is, is problematizing the, notion of transition as it was employed uh, between 2015 and uh, 2019 in Sri Lanka uh, to describe the efforts of the uh, new regime that came into power in 2015, replacing the former regime of uh, uh, Mahindra Rajabaksha under whose presidency uh, the Sri Lankan army won uh, the war against the ending the uh, civil uh, war in Sri Lanka in May 2009. Now I will be looking at the politics of uh, the invocation of the term transition, uh, looking at uh, what was uh, achieved in the between 2015 and 19 and what was not achieved. Uh, I will be um, casting uh, the transitional justice program between 2015 and 19 as merely uh, largely speaking a foreign policy management exercise on the part of the new government. And then I'll offer some reflections on um, uh, how one best can read, uh, how one should approach the question of transition in deeply divided societies uh, like Sri Lanka, particularly uh, the the inadequacy of liberal democracy and liberal peace uh, paradigms to understand uh, uh, the issues with justice, uh, deeper reforms for democracy in countries like Sri Lanka. I think as uh, as the format of the program goes, I'll go on for about 30 to 40 minutes, after which I'll be happy uh, to engage um, uh, during the question and answer session with the participants. Um, just as a preliminary, again, I'm aware, I mean, by just looking at the list of participants here, I'm aware that some of them have very deep knowledge of Sri Lanka. So for those of you who are very aware of the uh, Sri Lankan context, uh, this might, uh, some of it might s- seem very Primary and preliminary, and for those of you who uh, who probably are not so aware of the Sri Lankan context, uh, I might be uh, saying things that you might not be able to follow through. So I'm happy to uh, engage during the question and answer session again uh, to to maybe explain, also go deeper into some of the issues that might uh, that I might actually skim through uh, during this presentation. Sorry, I'm just trying to get to the next slide. let me try this okay right so the uh, civil war in sri lanka um lasted for more than 30 years um in which, uh, during the last phase of the war in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, the panel of experts report um, panel of experts appointed by the UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon reported at least forty thousand people died in the last phase of the war. But if you take the longer view, three decades of war took uh, more than eighty to uh, one hundred thousand uh, people perished in the war. The genesis of the conflict uh, is uh, rooted in the systemic exclusion of the uh, Tamil community from economic resources, state-sponsored colonization uh, from state power, uh, and the periodic infliction of state-sponsored organized violence against the Tamil community. Examples including 1958, 1977, 1983, following which uh, there was a full-scale war in Sri Lanka, Tamil young, um, uh, Tamil uh, militant movement starts to blossom and there was a full scale war with the LTT um, establishing itself as the lead uh, sort of Tamil militant movement, crushing the others uh, and waging a 30-year old war uh, with the Sri Lankan government. Uh, now um, that war, as I uh, previously said, uh, came to an end in um, uh, 2009. And um, the war itself uh, saw violations of uh, international humanitarian law and human rights law of a level that later would be described in the Office of the High Commissioner's report on Sri Lanka in 2015 as amounting to systemic crimes. Now, I think an understanding of the crimes as uh, uh, that were committed as systemic crimes is important to our understanding of, uh, of transition and what transitional uh, what transition constitutes in the context of the transfer justice program that was uh, rolled out between two thousand fifteen and nineteen? So I, I just want to highlight that here, and uh, the uh, and post two thousand nine, you have you had a regime that came in place, um, which uh, which declared uh, Mahindra Baksha declared that the uh, not only was a war over, but the uh, issues that led to the war in itself were now. Uh, no longer relevant to public discourse in Sri Lanka. Famously, the Sri Lankan president in 2009 in parliament declared that there would be no more minorities in Sri Lanka and that there would be only two types of people, the famous sort of, you know, Bush type of classification of you either for the country or against the country. So you either love the country or uh, those small groups that don't uh, love the land of their birth. This is how Rajabaksha, in his first speech in parliament after the end of the war, uh, characterized uh, the, the, the way in which his government was uh, framing the post-war context. Um, they, uh, the regime turned out to be extremely popular among the singular Buddhist majority. Um, until then, uh, in 2010, it was uh, believed that given Sri Lanka's proportional representation system that a government with a two thirds majority could not be returned to power, that you know the whole proportional representation system Uh, was designed to to exclude the possibility of a very strong um, uh, parliament controlled by one uh, single party. But despite the proportional representation system, um, uh, Rajavaksha was extremely popular that uh, it turned out to be a, they they, they won the elections with a two-thirds majority and and brought in a, a scale of reforms that push back uh, again a lot of things that were assumed in the constitutional discourse. Now, for example, until 2010, all um, leaders who came into power um, promised a scale back of the executive presidency, uh, but once with, the, with Rajabaksha winning the war and arguing that the executive presidency was essential to the winning of the war, the uh, executive presidency as an institution uh, gained a lot more populist attraction uh, post-2009, which then led to Rajabaksha consolidating on on that sort of uh, view uh, of that populism uh, uh, that attracted uh, towards executive presidency to the, uh, that uh, that he removed the term limits to the executive presidency and he also further took away um, uh, took for himself uh, the executive president powers relating to appointment to all sorts of institutions including the judiciary uh, the human rights commission the police commission and all independent public uh, so there was so in fact the 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 2009 movement as i've argued elsewhere changed the tide in terms of uh, uh, a negative uh, viewing of the executive presidency as a constitutional office Towards a more positive sort of rendering populist sort of you know acceptance of the executive presidency as a as a, as the as the office that made possible the victory uh, of the civil war, uh, which hitherto was impossible. This was a narrative that Rajiv has found. and on that sort of populist stride, uh, there was a further concentration of power in the hands of the executive president. Now, um, 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 this would mean I mean the fact that. Uh, Mahendra Rajvaksha did not need the support of uh, the numerically smaller communities, meant that he unleashed a program where uh, there was further entrenchment of singular Buddhist hegemony uh, in the political affairs of the country. So that included, uh, for example, um, security forces occupying large swaths of land in the north and east uh, in the name of security, but also in the name of singular uh, Buddhistization. Uh, extreme levels of surveillance, um, arrests, and torture of uh, particularly um, uh, Tamil activists and uh, uh, XLTT carders and all sorts of uh, b- b- oppression uh, that was unimaginable. So, so between 2010 and 15, then you had a government uh, that was hell bent on establishing, uh, I would say, I and mean, I'll come to the second um, uh, period of the Rajabaksha um, uh, regime uh, that starts in 2019. But at least between 2010 and 15, uh, there was, uh, there was for the first time then, um, uh, an attempt to infuse uh, militarization into democratic governance. I think to understand this point is, uh, is important, given our more recent experience now, in that in Sri Lanka, the, the role of the military Uh, comes through the sort of, you know, quote-unquote democratic space, I mean, by bringing them into the democratic space, and I think there are are interesting comparisons with Myanmar here in that, you know, in Myanmar, the military was asking for reservations in parliament and whereas here now, uh, it it seems uh, that both parties, uh, and particularly uh, the current ruling party, is infusing the military within uh, sort of, you know, the electoral uh, infrastructure, trying to bring The military into a more sort of prominent role in democratic governance through democratically elected means, and I think you are seeing that now increasing. But that was started in two thousand. So between two thousand and ten and fifteen, then you had this uh, very high level of militarization accompanied by uh, complete. uh, So this also um, um, uh, not only the Tamil community but also the Muslims. Uh, 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 They have a periodic uh, sort of you know violence, uh, organized violence again meted out against the Muslims. Uh, during this period, uh, which then uh, led to uh, 2015. Now, during this time, uh, the relationship that Rajabaksha had with uh, the international community, quote unquote, the international community, particularly led by the West, uh, using the UN Human Rights Council to push forward an agenda of accountability and justice was was one of uh, dismissal, in that they did not want to engage with the UN Human Rights Council, there were a couple of resolutions that were passed which um, uh, allowed Rajapaksha to take uh, to use uh, domestic mechanisms to buy time, like, for example, the Lessons Learned and Reconciliation Commission. The UN Human Rights Council would say, implement uh, in 2012 and 13, they passed uh, resolutions asking for implementation of those resolutions. Uh, and then in 2014, the UN Human Rights Council passed a resolution setting uh, asking the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights to to launch uh, an investigation into Sri Lanka into the various violations that had happened. And while, and that happened in 2014 and 2015 in the presidential elections, um, uh, one of uh, Rajabaksha's confidants, uh, uh, Maitripala Sri Sena left, uh, left Mahindra Rajabaksha, came out and then joined the opposition to become what is known as a common candidate Uh, to face a 2015 election. Um, Now, in the the, the 2015 presidential election, uh, with the support of a significant, uh, with with a very large majority of Tamil and Muslim votes, and a significant minority of singular votes, uh, he was able to defeat Baksha at that election and he came into power. Now, this was uh, described uh, this was described in the media at that time uh, this was uh, and I'm, i have on screen here uh, mangala Samaravira is uh, uh, the then for the foreign minister in that new regime uh, he characterized um, uh, the uh, 2015 january 8 vote bringing sri Sena into power as sri lanka's rainbow revolution uh, in that um, different communities came together to make it possible and the language of revolution was uh, was was used with uh, in a widespread manner particularly by um, um, uh, those who aligned themselves with the government but also by the west uh, who saw that uh, this government uh, would be able to change the tide in terms of their own foreign policy goals in the region in that their primary sort of you know uh, problem with the Rajabaksha was that they were aligning themselves too much with China and the change in government in 2015. And I have a quote here from the New York Times uh, uh, talking about uh, the um, uh, uh, reporting on the change of government. So the focus was on the fact that uh, they would distance themselves from China and be more pro-West in their uh, foreign policy orientation. So this uh, so this was the uh, transition. Uh, so there was a, so, so until Uh, 2015, then you had both, um, uh, you know, uh, non-governmental organizations in Sri Lanka, international NGOs, human rights organizations, Uh, the West talking about accountability uh, for war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, up until 2015. And with the change of regime in 2015, then they started talking about, they started invoking the language of transitional justice. And the language of transition that the election of uh, president sri sena in 2015 constituted they argued the transition but was this correct i mean i, I, I and this is the problem here so sri sena in fact and here i give uh, examples uh, during his campaign uh, that sri sena did not actually depart from the fundamental issues of the Rajapaksha presidency which again uh, were rooted in singular buddhist majoritarian politics Uh, Sri Sena during the election, repeatedly said that he would not be uh, withdrawing troops from the north uh, and east, uh, where uh, security forces, uh, the Sri Lankan army, uh, had a disproportionate presence in the country. Uh, He would sign an agreement with the ultra-nationalist Jati Kaila to say that that he won't tamper with the unitary character of the constitution. Whereas uh, this uh, government otherwise was arguing, uh, his uh, coalition was arguing that they would... Uh, bring in constitutional reforms to address the root cause of the problem, but he would. De- uh, but then he would also then go and sign, uh, parallelly, um, an agreement saying that he would not uh, change the fundamentals of uh, the current constitutional setup. Uh, he uh, again promised during the campaign not to cooperate with the inquiry set up by the UN Human Rights Council in 2014. This was the one that I was mentioning, the YSL, the, the Office of the. Uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights-led inquiry uh, mandated by the 2014 resolution passed in the Human Rights Council. And he even went to argue uh, that uh, that the prospect, the the better prospect for Rajapaksha being protected from uh, international uh, inquiry and and possibly the International Criminal Court, he argued, was uh, by him being elected into power, That, that the best chance that Sri Lanka had to escape from international scrutiny uh, was um, him coming into power. So this was the kind of, so, so in fact, Sri Sena's rhetoric uh, election uh, positioning and signaling uh, during um, his candidacy had, had nothing to do with the kind of transition that was otherwise being packaged um, uh, packaged by his coalition to, to, to external actors, right? And so in January, he wins the election uh, in, in uh, later in uh, August, um, um, his coalition wins the parliamentary elections. Uh, very surprisingly, the High Commissioner for Human Rights and recommends to the Human Rights Council that the, that the report that he had put together as a result of the uh, 2014 Human Rights uh, Council resolution should be delayed. Uh, it was later submitted in September and then in October 2015, you had a resolution passed by the UN uh, Human Rights Council, which uh, provided for uh, the setting up of a hybrid mechanism which the government of Sri Lanka co-sponsored the resolution. So I've uh, reproduced operator paragraph six of the resolution there. So, there was an ex- uh, uh, The Sri Lankan government uh, promised a hybrid mechanism, including um, a, co- uh, a special court with foreign judges on it um, foreign judges, defense lawyers, and other authorized prosecute, uh, prosecutory investigators, and so on. Uh, and there was a range of other mechanisms also that were promised a truth commission, an office on missing persons, um, 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 uh, promised to um, uh, deal with reparations. All of these promises were made. And in Geneva, the, the, uh, the, the, the note that uh, the Sri Lankan government was striking was that, you know, uh, that they don't want to do this because the international community is asking them to do it. But they, they are doing it largely because they think that this is something that we, uh, that we should do for Sri Lankans and this would be good for uh, the country as a whole. But then, uh, and this was in Geneva. So, so this was a messaging in Geneva, right? Whereas when, the, when Foreign Minister Samaravira, soon after the resolution returned to Colombo, uh, the kind of uh, um, uh, messaging there was that this resolution uh, marks uh, 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 a change in uh, foreign policy and the way in which foreign policy is handled by this, handled by Sri Lanka, that we have been embarrassed in the past by Human Rights Council resolution we've done the right thing. Sri Sainabh would, in fact, uh, and I've just reproduced some paragraphs from uh, the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs press release uh, uh, that was directed towards Sri Lankans after the resolution was passed. So you can compare this with uh, Samaravira's uh, speech in Geneva just a month back. Um, so the Sri Sena would go on to argue that there was a diplomatic victory uh, that they had managed uh, Geneva well. So in fact, then, the, the route to transitional justice, the re- decision to, to engage in quote unquote transitional justice was largely a foreign policy management exercise. It was a foreign policy management exercise intended to manage uh, the, their, their relationship with the international community, particularly the ones in the West. And as uh, FM Samaravira mentions in this press release in Colombo, uh, to, to portray Sri Lanka as a, a friendly nation, as a nation that fits within the sort of, you know, moral landscape of international law and international politics. And sort of, you know, we are asking for readmission because we are good kids, you know, we are, we are not the bad ones and we want that readmission and that is why uh, we are doing this. And so, so it's a very interesting, I mean, there've been other studies also on how uh, the language of transitional justice is appropriated uh, for, uh, for, for for foreign policy goals and um, and domestic poli- uh, political goals. but here is a, is a very sort of you know open and and what is strange is that I mean that there, there was engagement uh, with this kind of rhetoric. Uh, well I say strange though not uh, for, for close observers of Sri Lanka this wasn't uh, any, anything um, a, any different to how uh, how the Sri Lankan government in the past also particularly uh, the party to which uh, Samaravira and Ramvikrasni belonged to are known to use, international uh, forums and uh, actors towards towards attaining their own goals. But but, but also the discourse around uh, uh, in which human rights organizations, international NGOs and Columbus Civil Society took part in further this uh, view that there is a transition that has taken place. And so the argument repeatedly made to people who were critiquing, who were critical of this, uh, uh, of the invocation of uh, transition here, was not to rock the boat. That you know, uh, piecemeal, slow reforms were possible, and by demanding, by critiquing the current regime, that we were uh, risking the possibility of a Rajabaksha return. So the scare of a, a Rajabaksha return um, was then used. I'm sorry, I'm I'm running through this because I want to get to uh, uh, the main sort of you know issues that I wanted to highlight in the speech um the the uh, the argument so every uh, during every nook and sort of corner anything that the government did anything that the government did between 2015 and 19 was judged against the possibility of rajapaksha returning right and so the avoidance of a rajapaksha return was more important uh, to the extent that some of the good things that were that were done between 2015 and 19 were not owned by uh, the government of sri lanka so for example uh, they did re- uh, release some lands in the north and east um, that were earlier held by the Sri Lankan army. But the Minister of Defense would go, uh, the State Minister of Defense and the Minister of Defense would claim in the south that they are not releasing those lands, right? And that they are not releasing XLPD carders. That there was a, f- because they felt that uh, there was, uh, that to do so would then attract Rajabaksha's criticism of being weak, uh, and, and and hence, uh, they, they did not even own up uh, to some of the good things, some of the, some of the positive moves um, uh, that they took uh, during this time. So hence, um, uh, there, there was a collapse of this uh, quote-unquote transition uh, very soon. I mean, there were half-hearted measures like the establishment of the Office of Missing Persons. Uh, the bill was passed in parliament in 2016, but for two years, there were no appointment of commissioners uh, again the bill was rushed through in 2016 to show geneva that they are acting on the resolution and not really because the office of missing persons were allowed to burn there were a lot of bottlenecks for example uh, the the treasury would refuse to um, authorize manage the release of management cards for amp to start functioning as an office then you had the office of uh, reparations which i have mentioned as or which was set up largely to provide advice to the parliament in terms of um, uh, how reparation should work rather than as an independent office. Then the Sri Lankan government claimed to uh, to embark on uh, prosecution of emblematic cases, which again, uh, um, uh, seriously failed. I mean, I, I, I myself had the uh, experience of um, uh, appearing in habeas corpus application in relation to enforced disappearances, where the government will come and take objections that these cases are now too late and that they are time barred, right? Whereas they would promise in Geneva that uh, they will o- open up old cases of enforced disappearances because uh, uh, the families have a right to know their answer. Uh, in emblematic cases, because of the structural inadequacies of uh, the Attorney General's Department, the prosecutorial system in place, the Attorney General's Department would appear for uh, the Sri Lankan Army in, uh, in these cases. Uh, so we, we, for example, took objection to the, uh, the Attorney Justice Department, who is also uh, duty-bound to prosecute these people. Uh, the, we, we pointed out to the irony of them then appearing to defend them in habeas corpus applications, but, you know, uh, no change. So, so, while, so the point that I'm making is, while there was all this rhetorical flush of uh, transition and transitional justice that were uh, being sort of doled out in Geneva and other places, on the ground in the Sri Lankan courts, in day-to-day uh, issues uh, relating to um, justice and, and access to uh, justice, there was uh, there was very little change. And so, even in emblematic cases that had not, that had, that weren't directly connected to the war and were more about corruption and abductions and that, and, and the eleven youth in Colombo abduction case is a very good example. Uh, the, the powerful forces. Uh, aligned with the align with the were able to dictate the terms on which those cases were conducted, and even the judiciary, which had arguably become more independent because of uh, the appointment uh, uh, process being uh, more, more independent now under this new regime, the Nineteenth Amendment that was passed, the independence uh, the, the judiciary would also fall fall uh, fall through on this. Uh, so they uh, there's a number of occasions where the judiciary would. Uh, block uh, the superior courts would block investigations into uh, crimes that were committed by uh, Gautabaya Baksha, by senior members of the armed forces, uh, including uh, the Navy commander, the then chief of defense staff, so on and so forth. So, so so, you had a system in place that was not dismantled. The government was not willing to dismantle that system in place to allow even these emblematic cases to proceed. That's the point that I might. Now, I think, and I'll come to this later, emblematic cases just prosecuting emblematic cases on its own itself is problematic. It doesn't uh, point to a transition or transitional justice. But even those, the constitutional reform process also failed. Um, I won't go into uh, too many details there, but I'm happy to answer um, any questions on that. I've also already mentioned the refusal to take ownership of progress. And, and, and so uh, so the transition then in 2018 came to a, a sudden sort of halt uh, with Sri Sena uh, switching to the Rajabaksha camp appointing Mindhra Rajabakhshar as prime minister, dismissing Rahul Vikramasinghe in a, in what was described as an unconstitutional coup, uh, which was then reversed by the Supreme Court. But that ended the sort of you know national unity government of uh, Rahul Vikramasinghe and Sri Sena working together. Now, what does this all? Uh, and then and then in 2019, in November, uh, the so-called, quote unquote, counter-revolution took place. Gotabaya Baksha, the wartime defense secretary, uh, Mahindra Adhivakshar's uh, younger brother won uh, won on a majoritarian platform, this, I mean, I, I, here I am complaining about the inadequacies of the 2015-19 regime in terms of what they did and, um, uh, uh, in terms of uh, access to justice, accountability, so on and so forth, but they won on a platform that largely argued uh, that, uh, that the uh, Sri Siena Vikramasinghe government had sold Sri Lanka to the international community. That was also the issue that, and I think that also uh, was an was a equal contributor in that um, um, uh, Sri Siena Vikramasinghe government mishandled the economy. Uh, people were um, uh, getting deeper into poverty, um, uh, particularly in the South where they were not seeing any um, um, economic development, economic growth, um, any, any, any substantial change in the everyday lives of the people, that all of that led to quote unquote this counter revolution that brought back the Rajivaksha's uh, with much more force. And so they're now back in power, not only um, in the presidency, but also in um, uh, through the parliamentary elections. Again, they managed a two thirds majority uh, in the proportional representative system. And now, uh, and I, uh, um, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, we are back to, to the 2010-15 era uh, and much worse, uh, much worse in the sense that, you know, uh, deeper militarization, uh, militarization that is much more institutionalized and not just individual specific. Uh, and uh, and the targeting of the Muslim community at, at a level um, um, unheard of in the past, right? I mean, the, the single, single Buddhist majoritarianism seems to be looking for new enemies and they found the Muslim community, which is now, um, and then and, and the sort of, you know, attack on the Muslim community, um, well, um, uh, 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 the biggest examples being the the forced cremation in that COVID-19 is being used to uh, refuse Muslims' uh, right to uh, bury their loved ones, uh, the government forcing, despite uh, the lack of any scientific evidence, forcing them uh, to be cremated. Right then, so what what do we learn from this, right? Um, I think there were at least three competing visions of transition. I mean, there was uh, something called transition that you looked at. I mean, one is a liberal cosmopolitan view represented by the 2015 2009 regime that believed that by just chipping away the war related uh, authoritarian, war induced uh, authoritarian characteristics of the state um, and infusing a little bit of liberal democracy, for example, um, restoring. A semblance of constitutional governance, uh, bringing back term limits to the executive presidency by making um, uh, public, uh, the appointment process more independent that you could uh, signal that as transition, uh, along with handling uh, wartime related accountability issues as largely aberrations Uh, of otherwise uh, a a Sri Sri Lankan army that uh, was known for its good conduct, right? So the the argument was that there were were some rotten apples in the Sri Lankan army that had to be removed. And once you do this, so this sort of, you know, liberal cosmopolitan view of transition would mean a, bring back liberal democracy in its true sense, sort of, you know, a limited government uh, and deal with accountability as if it was uh, that there wasn't a systemic problem here, but that, that these were merely aberrations that happened during the end of the war. Uh, so that was the main sort of view that you found in 2015-19, to which uh, sort of you know the liberal democratic institutions that engage with this government accepted that kind of narrative. Uh, be that um, uh, you know um, the global north uh, states in the global north, but also human rights organizations, and I would say Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, and all of that. Found that to be uh, an attractive uh, sort of, you know, way of understanding transition. What I call democracy with a small D, right? And then you had the critical view, and I would argue the Tamil view. And I'm not saying that there was one Tamil view, but uh, uh, but the the, the criticism of that uh, uh, was that this wasn't enough. That the overhaul of the state, uh, some form of self-government, uh, prosecution of crimes committed by the state forces. Um, and uh, understanding of these crimes as systemic crimes was essential uh, for uh, for transition in sri lanka right and this did not match with the uh, liberal cosmopolitan view uh, and hence there was always that sort of you know distance between the tamil uh, polity largely speaking and the uh, sort of you know uh, new government the transition uh, the, the, the revolutionary government in place in 2015 and that gap uh, was never resolved and kept exacerbating. And that was also reflected in civil society. And, and and sort of, you know, Tamil society took a very different view of the regime as opposed to uh, the civil society organization in Colombo. And that led to further sort of, you know, polarization between these uh, organizations, between these communities, uh, which which, uh, which have reflected uh, engagement on questions of accountability and justice throughout. And then there was finally the single Buddhist majority view, uh, that you know there was no need for a transition that the transition was needed when um, the war ended and that and all we need to do now is get together as a country and work towards economic development which is reflected in the current regime um, and also um, uh, the, the regime that was in power in 2010 15 so uh, so the problem with the and, and and the inadequacies of the liberal cosmopolitan uh, view was that they were very afraid to take on the singular buddhist majority view There was, I would argue, there was no democratic incentive for justice. Uh, And, 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 you know, transitional justice workshop seminars, uh, which became a buzzword um, with a lot of funding donor driven, uh, was just not enough. Um, uh, That was not going to change the view of why uh, uh, accountability and justice was necessary. So, so, so in fact, the two major parties, including the one that Sri Sena and Vikramasinghe belong to, Felt that there was no democratic incentive, and this, um, um, uh, and this is the point that I was making earlier, that there was no ownership of even some of the progressive reform that the earlier regime was undertaking because there was, no uh, there was no democratic dividends for them by doing that, by taking ownership of it, right? And so the maximum extent to which they were willing to go to uh, was to say, uh, so for example, like Manglasamy would say, you know, the Sri Lankan army was respected throughout the world. Um, it's it's uh, disrespected because of a few rotten apples. We have to do with the rotten apples and establish. And so, for example, would, uh, in National Security Council meetings, argue with the military that uh, this approach was necessary to bring back uh, the respectability of the Sri Lankan army. And so that was the extent to which this, you know, that view of transition was willing to travel in terms of transitional justice in that deal with uh, liberal democratic reform, um, uh, reform of constitutional governance, and and deal with accountability and justice only at, at the surface level without really understanding uh, the crimes that took place, the systemic uh, crimes, and without having to go deeper into that narrative. And 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 so that that is the problem. The problem with under uh, uh, for for the regime in the south, whether it is the current regime or the former regime. Um, for them to understand to, to get to accept that there were systemic crimes that were committed was a problem that the systemic crimes would then indicate a larger problem of the state itself. That uh, the, the constitution of the state, the understanding of the state, the understanding of the state as a singular Buddhist state. Itself would, I mean the systemic crimes would reveal that that is the root cause of the problem and hence if you do embark on an inquiry. On a on a truth-seeking uh, the, into the into the true uh, into why the systemic crimes took place, then that would uh, lead to an unraveling of the state itself, which uh, for which there was no uh, willingness to do right, and the other way around as well. And so this is why this is how I believe. Uh, the question of constitutional reform, uh, non-recurrence, and uh, understanding crimes that were committed as systemic crimes are interrelated, if you accept that the Sri Lankan state as it stands excludes uh, the numerically smaller communities, and something needs to be done about it. I think from that understanding of the need for fundamental state reform would also then allow you uh, to think about these crimes as systemic. So I think it works uh, through both ways. And the, f- and, and the failure and the refusal by the political class to engage with the fundamental and, and, and systemic and structural nature of the problems of the state would mean that both constitutional reforms are not achieved, as well as an understanding of what, uh, um, what prevents uh, the possibility of accountability and justice uh, at a domestic level. So uh, so I, uh, so I, I think uh, um, I think this uh, sort of reading of transitional justice and transition in those sort of you know narrow liberal, democratic, liberal peace lens does actually a disservice in that uh, they, they, it refuses to engage with the reasons that led to the situation that uh, Sri Lanka finds itself in. And by dealing only with the surface, it alienates particularly the numerically smaller communities from the possibility of larger internal reform and further uh, sort of polarizes communities uh, to an extent where uh, the problem seems more and more intractable. Uh, And and, and I think the lesson for uh, international law and international politics and those interested in uh, transitional justice is that uh, one has to be very careful about assuming Uh, mere regime changes as moments of transition, right? Uh, Regime change uh, that that does not uh, signal or even provide for uh, a preliminary engagement with the structural issues that um, affect uh, deeply divided societies like Sri Lanka aren't actually transitions and they should not be read as transitions and to promote them as transitional justice opportunities, I think does a disservice for those communities Uh, and further polarizes. So thank you very much. I'll stop there and um, happy to engage uh, in question.